0: Like Bedlam, the dungeon of the Bay of Algiers lay at the frontiers between human imagination and insanity. The greatest inconvenience in this prison, wrote the American sailor turned slave James Cathcart in the late 18th century, is in consequence of the lions and tigers kept there. I have known 27 animals of this description to have been kept at once in this prison, which are maintained at the expense of the Christian tavern keepers. They frequently break loose and have killed several of the slaves. The historian Paul Bapler records that many slaves were maimed, bastinadoed, and even skewered alive. One slave, John Rollins, wrote that young English sailors were picked by the Sultan of Morocco for his pleasure. I quote, compelled to turn Turk or made subject to more viler prostitution. Last week, with Yemen's Houthi insurgents firing missiles and drones at global shipping transiting through the Red Sea and a multinational fleet moving into the region, some experts have been contemplating how the story of the Barbary pirates, the greatest maritime threat of that time, was crushed in the 1800s. For centuries, the coastal states of the Maghreb, that's Northern Africa, either independent kingdoms like Morocco and Algiers or loosely allied to the Ottoman throne in Istanbul, unleashed state-sponsored piracy against weaker powers in the Atlantic to finance their regimes. The United States of America economist G. Thomas Woodward estimated paid between 10 and $20 billion from 1785 to 1815 in today's money to ransom sailors, pay tributes, and to operate anti-piracy naval missions. Insurance for American ships entering the Mediterranean had a premium of 30% over that of other countries. The historian Robert Davies notes that some European countries like Denmark and Italy without large navies had to underwrite the costs of ransoming enslaved sailors. Fed up by failed efforts to make peace, the United States and the United Kingdom finally turned to force. Following a successful naval blockade in 1804, American troops captured the Libyan city of Derna and threatened the local rulers with what we would now call regime change. The British followed up in 1816, subjecting Algiers to a nine hour bombardment, which historian Oded Lauenheim has described as, and I quote, the largest cannonade dealt upon a literal target by a naval force during the age of sail. Algiers crumbled. A role model, it would seem, for what ought be done again in the Red Sea. But the story isn't quite as simple as it seems. Even though Houthi attacks on shipping drew little media attention until the Gaza conflict, the insurgents have sustained a tactical anti-shipping campaign for years. In 2016, Houthis used a DAO to shadow a United Arab Emirates Navy high-speed logistics support ship before hitting it with a land-fired missile causing severe damage to the UAE's ability to sustain its force in Yemen. The crew of the United States guided missile destroyer DDG-87 was forced to fire interceptors to defend itself. The next year, a Saudi frigate was targeted by missiles fired from three Houthi insurgent boats, killing several crew members. Another attack in 2018 caused damage to a Saudi oil tanker and in 2021, an Emirati civilian crew was taken hostage when their ship was hijacked. Israel and Palestine did not figure even in the footnotes of those incidents. But their military logic and message was clear. Following 9-11, the US handed out unconditional support to Yemen's notoriously corrupt president Ali Abdullah Saleh in return for his cooperation against Al-Qaeda. This set off small scale rebellions by the Shia Houthi tribes in northern Yemen. The rebels, though, proved unable even to defend their mountain caves. And their charismatic leader, Hussein Badr ad-Din, was publicly executed. Political scientist Michael Knight has written. The martyrdom of Hussein Badr ad-Din, though, broadcast even through pamphlets showing his dead body, swelled the Houthi ranks thousands of young men joined training camps run by his sons. In response to the insurgents' hit-and-run sniping attacks, the Yemeni government responded with ferocity using conventional artillery and armour. This alienated many of the northern tribes otherwise not linked to the Houthis. In 2009-2010, when the sixth phase of war erupted between the state and the insurgents, the Houthis were confident enough to force the surrender of an entire Yemeni brigade and strike deep into Saudi Arabia. Even though the insurgents found themselves confronted by vastly superior Saudi and UAE forces, Knight notes that the Houthi were able to use low-force, high-space formations to deny their enemies targets. Later in 2019, the insurgents showed the ability to bring the war to Saudi Arabia's heart using Iran-supplied drones and missiles to blow up the Abkeek and Khoresh oil facilities. Though Abkeek was supplied with at least one MIM-104 Patriot Missile Defense System, a state-of-the-art American-manufactured missile defense unit, it simply could not cope with the swarms of incoming, low-cost, expendable warheads. The anti-Israel posturing demonstrated by the Houthis needs to be read against this background. Targeting Saudi Arabia has won them peace negotiations, which, however fraught, give the Houthis some semblance of state authority. The southern separatists who control key parts of Yemen share space with Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and various other jihadi factions operating in the region which have staged vicious attacks on the Houthis' Shia religious resources. Eliminating this resistance is obviously one of the Houthis' major objectives. For months now, analyst Ahmad Nagy writes, Saudi Arabia has been locked in diplomatic negotiations. Its aims are to limit Iranian influence in its backyard with the Houthis and prevent the resurgence of attacks which could hurt the kingdom. The Houthis, in turn, seek to emerge as the principal, if not sole force in a unified Yemen. More likely than not, the attacks on Red Sea shipping, which we're seeing now, are intended as a rent-seeking gesture to help with those negotiations, not as an ideological war cry. The attempted hijacking of the MV Central Park, for example, one of the big ships recently targeted, was later attributed by the United States authority to a Somali pirate cartel, not the Yemenis. Ever since President Saleh's term in office, the Somali cartels and Yemen's competing warlords had an intimate relationship with Aden serving as a hub for money laundering, hostage negotiations and for trafficking weapons. Large numbers of heavily militarized islands off Yemen's coast can easily become a means to harass, shipping, Should the Houthis judge it to be in their interests? Even though the high tide of Somali piracy came to an end around 2013 as the result of multinational military activities as well as private armed guards on ships, it's not clear if the conditions which ended it have actually gone. Scholar Peter Vico Jacobson notes. At the time, the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council stood on the same page and Somalia itself was induced to cooperate with generous funding. Interestingly, piracy continues to flourish off the Gulf of Guinea and the East China Seas, where the same conditions don't apply. Without careful handling, piracy or other forms of blackmail against Red Sea shipping could easily resume. For the moment, Israel's war in Gaza gives enough legitimacy to sail dense numbers of peacekeeping forces through the Red Sea. But the model is ultimately unsustainable. The multi-billion dollar investments needed to protect shipping pale in comparison with the threats from low-grade missiles occasionally lobbed at passing shipping. Indeed, at least some shipping giants have calculated the odds and are already resuming shipping through the Red Sea. Using force isn't a solution. And the lessons the world learned from the Barbary was, should have brought that point home. The problem seemed to end when France occupied the Maghreb in 1830. But colonial occupation set off savage rebellions in the Rif Mountains from the Zen confederation of tribes and from native troops in the city of Fez. French colonial arms won, but at huge cost and setting off events which ran for a century. The French were also able to colonize Algeria, but in a campaign that many historians consider to be a genocide. Even the mass killing did not enable France to remain in the Maghreb indefinitely and set the stage for its still fraught relationships in sub-Saharan Africa. Like diamonds, some wars are forever. The real solution, if there is one, is to enable degraded states like Yemen and Somalia, the gatekeepers of the Red Sea arrive at genuinely national settlements between ethnicities about their future, which are free of foreign proxy. They need aid to guard against actors turning to piracy and extortion by ballistic missiles. The American fleet sailing through the Bab el the gate of tears as locals call it because of the perils of navigation in the narrow waters, will one day return home. Somalia and Yemen will remain Incubating the next brutal crisis. I'm Praveen Swami and I'm contributing editor at the print. Thank you again for watching Security Code.